You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law with me and Paul. Yeah, it's Paul Doroshenko, and uh, this week there's no Wrigley, although we're recording in Richmond in the Brazen Bull studio, and usually we have your dog. It's yeah, he's suffering sadly alone at home, but it's raining, so he doesn't really particularly care that he's not outside. Well, he likes to perch on the sofa and stare out the window. I'm sure he's doing he fine. Yes, yeah. exactly. He can survey his land. I imagine that like in his mind, he's hearing Mufasa telling him, Wrigley, Everything the light touches is your kingdom. That could be. Yeah. Each time he's here after we're finished, Kyla has to go up out and clean all the garbage cans because he knocks over all the garbage cans looking for something delightful. Yeah, he's a very poorly managed dog. I, I look after my <laughs> law practice a lot better than I look after my pets. I don't think you're a bad pet owner. I think you're a good pet owner. You love your dog. You spend a lot of time with him. It's just that there's long periods that he's alone and you don't spend any time really Uh, training him. He's trained to do all sorts of cool things like cuddle and give me some love and dance and jump and um, come inside when I say treat. He sits for me. He shakes a paw. He's a good dog. I trained him to shake a paw. Anyway. We're not here to talk about dog law. That's the animal justice podcast we had Camille Labchuk on several weeks ago. You weren't here for that, Paul. Um, but It was good listening. It was. Yeah. Um, this week, I wanted to continue our discussion from last week about changes to the criminal code. And this time, talk about what's to come. I'll do my best not to get philosophical because I was really philosophical last week with cannabis legalization and thinking about myself and my practice and those years of dealing with cannabis cases and all of the things that I could have done differently and that I do now that would have been more effective then. And, uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I've stopped thinking about it. I've moved on. That's fair. That's good. I'm Um, glad you've moved on. We're facing some significant changes to the criminal code. There is some huge shit coming and and the sad and also scary thing for me is the lack of attention that has been paid by the public and by the media to what hasn't been implemented. Like alongside cannabis legalization, there was all this discussion about per se limits and uh, saliva testing and DRE and, and whether SMSTs are a good method for roadside detection and all of that. But we have some huge overhaul of the alcohol impaired driving changes coming in December and very little being said about them. And the creepiest thing about that is that they are changes that could not have been made Mm -mm. standalone because people would have looked at it and said, this is bullshit. And as a result of the fact that the liberals have been doing these omnibus bills, uh, the same thing they criticized the Harper government for. And, you know, I'm generally, I'm fall in the center of the, of the political spectrum. But I have to tell you, these omnibus bills to change the criminal code are absolute crap. And they've stuffed these changes in with the cannabis legalization changes. And, you know, they they succeeded. They managed to pull the wool over people's eyes. Well, look at, I mean, you can look at what happened in the Senate. And we did the podcast the day um, that the Senate removed random breath testing, which is one of the changes that has got some attention that's on its way. Um, And then... Only days later, it went back to the House. The House put it right back in, sent it back to the Senate, and the Senate passed it because the cannabis legalization deadline was looming and they wanted the impaired driving bill passed so that they could deal with the specter of drug-impaired drivers. It's it's just so creepy the way they did it. It's so upsetting the way they did it. Yeah, because random breath testing was introduced as private members' bills repeatedly and, like, died on the House floor. They were backbencher bills introduced by crazies. And (laughs) at every time, they never got got support. And, and you know, the liberals laughed at it when there was a backbencher in Harper's government introduced it. And Harper's government was smart enough not to do it Mm -hmm. because they, you know, read the charter, I guess. Maybe they (laughs) got some good... uh, uh, some some good legal advice. I you know 
Peter Hogg's opinion that the that oh the God. that the government uh, relied on was just you know from my perspective bought and paid for it 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 made no sense. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I could have written that legal opinion drunk and probably done no, no, a because job. it was wrong. And yeah, no, I mean it was just all wrong. Oh, sure, but I can be a devil's advocate. Oh yeah, no, we could all do that, but I mean like how to go against decades of charter litigation and 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 the the plain reading of the charter, <laughs> like it's just the yeah. forget the charter litigation, forget the interpretation, plain reading of the charter. Yeah, well, I mean, I think we've talked random breath testing enough on the podcast already that we don't need to cover it other than to say. Well, there is one thing I want to cover about it. Yes. And uh, I've wanted to discuss this and you and I have not had an opportunity to really discuss this. Um, although I told you one day when I was driving somewhere and I, you know, this came to me. So they eliminate what we currently have now, which is a police officer has a reasonable suspicion that a person has alcohol in their body, a pretty easy standard for them to achieve. So they ask the person if they've had anything to drink tonight, typically, or today or this afternoon, or they lean into the car and try and smell liquor on the driver's breath. Easy. It is, however, a standard. They've mm -hmm. set a standard has to be a driver or reasonably contemporaneous driving and then a reasonable suspicion of alcohol in the body. Now they are eliminating that standard. It's not going to exist at all. Well, they're still keeping the driving part. Driving, but they're going to eliminate the standard of a reasonable suspicion. It just is a police officer makes a demand yes. and that's all there is. Now, I think that that is going to be found unconstitutional. Well, duh. Yeah, obviously <laughs> we both believe that. Um, but, the, but the point is, what is going to happen in all of those cases where there is no longer some lawful authority in the criminal code to make that demand when that law is struck down? What I'm saying is that even in cases where there is a reasonable suspicion that the officer can articulate, I smell liquor on him, you know, he, he, he had an open beer in his cup holder, uh, he admitted he was drinking from that beer, we waited 15 minutes, he provided a test and he failed there's no lawful authority if that law is struck down. There's right. no reasonable suspicion anymore. If that, if now that they've changed the law and the reasonable suspicion is gone, you can't just import it because we're talking about a warrantless search. Yeah, you're not reading into the provision that says you don't need a reasonable suspicion, that you do need a reasonable suspicion. You can't use the read-in remedy there. Exactly. So basically... Oh, we're going to read it in to read what it said before. <laughs> so every impaired driving case where an approved screening device is used starting the beginning of December when this law comes into effect, every one of them could be a situation where it is an unconstitutional demand and turfed. And we may have, well, we may have thousands of people in this country who <laughs> are, are beat would you like and I, I, you're, you hear me laughing, but I mean, you know, this is what I no, do and the funny, government is, I, well, it is funny because the government is fucking stupid. Well, I, I'll, I'll be the devil's advocate and tell you what faced with those facts. If you were crown counsel, Jay Fogle, you know, very smart, smart, smart. impaired driving specific sure. crown. I was in Vancouver today and I dealt with two smart prosecutors, one with lots of experience and. One with not so much experience, but both of them very reasonable and I'm trying to thinking think about it. Who's no, dealing with impaired driving cases. Yeah. Because we don't deal with that many in BC anymore. Yeah. Compared to the, you know, the way it was prior to yeah. the IRP scheme coming out. But if you're assuming you're Jay Fogel and you're standing in court saying it's going to be chaos because all of a sudden we've compromised every impaired driving prosecution that starts with an ASD demand, including the entirety of the immediate roadside prohibition scheme in British Columbia... Here's what I say as the judge. One, suspend the declaration of invalidity, which inherently in and of itself is problematic because it's saying we're going to, we recognize this as unconstitutional, we're going to punish all you people on the basis of an unconstitutional law. Although the government could probably hold an emergency session and pass something real quick, and they'd probably have to, and they'd be smart to do it. But that's one thing. Another thing that could happen is they could do what they did in Civia. Remember in Civia, the court found the law unconstitutional, and they said that the declaration of invalidity was suspended until 
what was it, November or June? I don't remember. It was suspended for a while to give the government the time to redraft. It was June. It was June 15th, 2012, to give the time to the government to redraft the legislation. They also did that with Bedford. Um, and then they could continue to prosecute people because the declaration of invalidity had been suspended. And for all the people that are prosecuted in the interim period, as well as all those leading up to it, they could rely on the substantial change in the law exception and not grant a constitutional remedy. And this is a substantial change in the law. It is a substantial change in the law, and the government was warned. That is true. You went to Parliament, you went to the Senate, you testified before the both. The Senate warned the government. Yeah, it was taken out of the law by the Senate. Um, you know, the government owns this one. And That's true. What's going to happen is the it's going to be declared invalid by a superior court, probably in BC, because it may get here first, but... Who knows? I've been thinking about other ways that lawyers could get this thing in in two weeks' time. There are lots of ways. Yep. and I've um, also been contemplating some. Don't think I haven't. No, I know. I'm you, sure you, you have. You know I want to run it. <laughs> I know you do. I know you do. I, and I'm hoping that, you know, we do end up with it. And it's fairly significant chance that it will be us. But um, I you, wrote when the I say argument. yes, it's you. I know you wrote the argument. Yeah. But in any event, I know. But uh, you haven't thought about, you clearly haven't thought about remedy. I know you're planning on doing it, but you're just going to do it. But the, uh, clearly you haven't thought about the remedy. And I, I think that's one of their number one challenges. I think it's also different when we're talking about uh, criminal code investigation. And we're also talking about multiple charter breaches. Yes. So we're not talking about just a section eight breach or just a 10 B breach. We've got multiple charter breaches here. Yep. And a, and a and warrantless a, search, which is prima which facie. Which triggers a, a mm -hmm. warrantless arrest, which triggers a second warrantless search, which triggers a detention and a transportation and triggers the right to counsel, which was previously suspended. And it's this whole snowball-y transactional thing. That's exactly. the technical legal term. Snowball -y transactional thing. Yeah. So I think that they have a problem there. And uh, I don't think that it's something, I mean, I, I, you know, I will tell you right now that the vast majority of impaired driving cases in this country are circumstances where nobody was hurt, the person pulled up to a roadblock, they blew into an approved screening device. And the vast majority of impaired driving cases will still be that, but the cases oh. where there's accidents and police have reasonable and probable grounds and they don't need to rely on a, on a proof screening device will still proceed as though, you know, without... Yeah, uh, it's not like the majority of the cases with the carnage, the death and the injuries are cases usually where an approved screening device is used. There are exceptions to that. I, I have them, but usually they don't use the ASD. And usually it's a case where they're getting samples with like a blood warrant later on because the or driver... The, or the person is shit tanked. drunk. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, and so you're not going to run into those prosecutions that maybe are more compelling for public interest reasons being turfed because of that. But I do... I do think there is that still that, you know, the stigma of drunk driving and the potential consequences and the fear Oh, I know. We factor. heard all that. We heard all that when we went and argued the, all of yeah, these yeah. constitutional cases for the IRP scheme. Yeah, everybody's going to die. No, oh, it's carnage on the road. It's going to, yeah, sure. I don't, uh, you know, I feel bad sometimes sounding so cynical about it, but I just don't see it playing out that the carnage increases if you put reasonable limitations on the powers of police. Because police are smart. Like, I think a lot of people just assume that they're these weird robots that aren't clever and able to think around constitutional constraints. They're there's, smart. There's, there's reasons that people think that, and that's because they can often be real jerks at the roadside. And part of the reason they want to do that, they do that is because their training is to do that, to keep people under control. Uh, most of the time you talk to police officers and they've thought it through. A mm. lot of them have read the law and they know the law very well. Often they know the law better than some of other lawyers we know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not knocking the lawyers. I'm just saying that there's a lot of police officers who know a lot of driving law out yep. there. Not everybody's up to speed on all of the driving law cases that some of the officers know. Okay, so remedy is going to be a big, interesting question. Huge question. I mean, first of all, we're saying, we're calling it right now that it's going to be struck down. Yeah. The remedy is the issue. Well, you and also, like, if you're, 
if the law is found invalid, not only do you have the, like, Section 52 remedies, but you also have your Section 24 remedies for the individual. So you've got, like, this big, like, bubbly pot of remedies. And multiple charter breaches here. I mean, we're starting with a charter breach to begin with. To commit other charter breaches. Let's breach the breaches. Yeah. Once more unto the breach. Yeah. No. Um, okay. I, I, I just, uh, this is a, a nightmare the federal government obviously didn't think through. And it's funny because you know that there's some lawyers at the other side who are coming up with this version of the law. And, the, you know, the justice minister, I think quite, I, I, I'm fairly certain, just gave the instructions. This is something she wanted and gave the instructions, figure out how we can do this. And she might have been warned, they might have thought about it, but I'll bet they didn't think about that. No. And I, we never told but the Senate or the Parliament confident. that. They're confident their law will withstand constitutional challenge because A, she wrote a charter statement, so that makes it charter compliant, and B, yes. That's the biggest bullshit that I has know. ever existed. We wrote charter we'll statements, charter so it must be charter compliant. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, okay. like, again, this yeah. is one of those things that, like... Also, I, I, have, I have yet to see a charter statement that contains any, like, real constitutional analysis you know it's funny because they came up with this concept of the charter statement to try and pull the wool over we the eyes of the court it. yeah we thought about it too. and uh had then they went and did it so badly right from the start <laughs> literally that just everyone is going to be here to write a but constitutional it's, but it's not opinion even that. it's not even that. that it's not even that you're like it's it's we're going to write the most unconstitutional legislation we can write we're going to put a charter statement in the front and then you in the superior court you judges there are not going to be able to understand you're, you're, you're going to get baffled by our charter statement no the, the, the <laughs> charter statement actually when you get to like a remedies perspective when you're looking at it from section 24 remedies is detrimental to them a good example of this is the case of I want to say Edwards, but I'm not right. Um, it's the knock and approach case where the police went and they were like sniffing their way down a hallway of an apartment and then knocking on mm. a door because they were looking for where the smell of pot was coming from. Won't be able to do that at all anymore. And um, the court found that it was a breach. It was a search and it was a, an invalid search because they didn't have the right to just you know, follow their nose like Toucan Sam to an offender and knock on a door, that the common law power to knock and approach is not for the purposes of inviting police to search your property. But in that case, the Supreme Court of Canada said, it's okay, because this was a new technique, the police hadn't thought about how the charter played into it, and so they were acting in good faith, and we're going to allow the evidence in this case, and all the cases in the future, we're not going to allow the evidence. I think they also took that approach recently on a cell phone search case or a laptop search case, where it's like, we're changing things, so we're going to allow this. But if you have a charter statement, it says we as the government have, have thought, about thought about this, which means the police, presumably acting under instructions that are coming from the government to the RCMP superiors, to the police officers themselves, are acting pursuant to that charter statement, and it opens the door to more remedies, individual remedies, for charter breaches than would perhaps otherwise be there. I Sorry. think also when the charter statement is just a cynical ploy to try and lie to the court, it's just not going to work. Uh, if I was, you know, I'll, I'll never be a superior court judge, I can guarantee that, but if I was, I'd be looking at this going, isn't this just some sort of bullshit to try and fake this and to, you know, persuade me? Isn't this some sort of, this looks like a complete lie to me. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I would be thinking at that time. You well, know, that's why they'll never appoint you. <laughs> yeah, like well, put, throw your name in for the superior court job, Paul, see if they listen to the podcast. Probably they would, uh, <laughs> they'd say your charter analysis on the, uh, on the podcast wasn't very good saying this is just kind of like pulling the wool kind of yeah. like over your eyes. That's yeah. a big, be a great judgment. It's I'd, my judgment from the bench. It, I'd be it, relying on that judgment all the time. You know what? You think of, uh, um, there's lots of Supreme Court judges who <laughs> will speak that way when you're in court having a discussion mm -hmm. with them. Lots of provincial court judges too, at least the older ones who have been around for a while who you know. Um, yeah. yeah. I, you know what? For any judges out there listening, lawyers, defense and crown, really like it when you just tell it like you see it. 
There's, and no, there's no judges listening, Kyla. You don't know that. There's students from UBC. They could be future judges. That's true. There might be future judges listening. That's true. And you don't know. There could be judges. The listening. straight goods. I always like the straight goods. Those judges who just ask me, like, but really, like, isn't this just this? Like Peter Leesk was said to have done, and I don't know. I was never in front oh, of him. Oh, I appeared in front of Leesk, and yeah. I'm only saying tell... his name. I can list other judges, but I'm only picking him because he's not a judge anymore. Yeah, well, he would tell you exactly what he thought. He uh, I, Wally Opal probably did that, too. I once went in front of him with an argument that was, oh, it was on a line. It was very mm, iffy. And I explained it, and he took one look at me, and he said, you're going to have a hard time convincing me of that, so you'd better have something better. What's next? And I liked it, because I did have something better, um, and I did win that case in the end. I had uh, a judge who's similar, who's still a judge in provincial court in Vancouver, walk in one day, and, and uh, I said, uh, it was the beginning of a sentencing, and he said, we started off, and he turned to me, and he said, well, what are you looking for? Was it assault with a weapon or something? I, I said, I, you're going to give my client an absolute discharge. He goes, there's no way. Don't even bother. There's no way. And then when I was walking out of court at the end, I was walking out of the room. I had already bowed. It was done. He goes, hey, hey, Mr. Dorshenko, you got your absolute discharge. <laughs> I, like, yeah, I told you. I, I wanted to. Darn right. Uh, the, like, other, yeah. the other day in traffic court, I just succeeded in an excessive speeding ticket trial. And I had run into the JP uh Oh, like a year ago, maybe. And he'd said, he'd been joking with me and said, you know, I love it when you come to court on an excessive, because I know you've got nothing. You've got nothing. It's excessive speeding. It's obvious. But I wanted at the end of the trial after I succeeded, although mm, it wasn't like a... It wasn't a blowout for you because the JP it, got involved and started... <laughs> well, it was a blowout in the sense that the evidence was so Well, you won bad. for two reasons. I won for three reasons. Anyway, the um, I did want to turn to him, though, at the end and go like, see, I did have remember? something. Yeah. <laughs> but I didn't. Said, yeah. But if he's listening. <laughs> <laughs> he's not listening. They're not listening. Um, and anyway. they'd be wise not to. Um, um, next thing that we wanted to talk about was, I don't know, what did you want to talk about next? Extrapolation. Oh, the retrograde extrapolation is just unbelievable. It's not backed by science. Um, it's yes, dumb. We it's are unfair. Gonna next week, have Nizer Shijani, a forensic toxicologist on the podcast. He's going to talk about the science behind back extrapolation. You got Nizer? I got Nizer. Excellent. Of course I got Nizer. Wonderful guy. Yeah. Well, there's other people now, too, who could explain that fairly well. Um, but Nizer uh, and I had had a number of retrograde extrapolation cases years ago, back when I used to run tons and tons of impaireds. And uh, he used to explain it to me and I would sort of ponder it and wonder, and then he'd explain it to me again and he'd say, look, these you need to know these factors. And even then, it's a, you know, you're talking about a biological creature. Mm -hmm. Every biological creature is going to respond differently. Yes. You can, there's only certain limits to what you can say. But I know, you know, the but government... you should explain, you should yeah. explain what retrograde extrapolation is, Kyla. Because so. if they're UBC students, you should know, you should learn. It's a worthwhile thing. I didn't know until I'd been doing it, this for two years. It's exactly what it sounds like. Ha ha ha. Um, <laughs> if the samples are taken... You're bastard. I'm horrible. Um, it, it, it's, it's weird because like now when I hear retrograde extrapolation, it's like just so inherent that I'm like, well, it's obviously just what it sounds like. Like my mind goes, but it's, it makes perfect sense when you hear the words, but... There's no context here. There's a, um, right now, until December, there's a presumption that if your blood or breath samples... It's a provision samples, in the criminal code that creates a presumption. Yes. If your breath samples are taken within two hours of the time that you were driving or in care and control of a motor vehicle, that's assumed to be the same the level... The first sample. Yes. Taken within two hours. Okay. Well, we're getting really technical here, but yes. The first sample within two hours, it's presumed to be the same as you were at the time of driving. You get all these cases, though, that the samples are outside two hours because there's an accident and the person has injuries or there's some big long delay because they're on the phone with the lawyer. Or they can't get in touch with the lawyer quickly. It's a drive, a long drive back to the detachment. They yep. don't have a BAC data master operator. They get they their... show up and it's or, not I working. I mean, a, a proved instrument operator. <laughs> they got to go uh, somewhere else. Yeah, they show up. It's not working. The guy's only qualified on the data master and not the Intox ECIR2. The Intox, the data master hasn't been maintained. 
they, you know, whatever. we had lots of hundreds of reasons. Yeah. So there's lots of reasons why they can be taken a longer period of time. Now, with the changes in December, two things about extrapolation are changing. One is that instead of two hours, it's three. So they get more time to get the samples. And the second is if it's outside of three. And, and that's a presumption, remember, that your blood alcohol concentration is the same as it was at the time of driving. So you're tested, you get 90 milligrams, maybe, you know, just short of three hours, two hours and 59 minutes. And the presumption They'll is They'll never that prove it at two hours and 59 minutes because I can buy a minute in cross-examination. Two hours and 50 minutes. <laughs> I can buy 10. I've bought 10 many times, <laughs> but okay, two hours and 45 minutes. But Damn you. <laughs> forget it. The point here yeah. is what I'm trying to say is that like the likelihood of your blood alcohol concentration r reasonably predicting what that would have been that two hours and 45 minutes before. We're not just in uh, uh, reasonable and probable grounds. We're not, we're certainly a long distance from proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah. Um, you know, in my mind, used all these things. We're like into the hocus pocus speculation now. Like Which we're is into really important because <laughs> one of the things that the court said in Saint-Ange-Lamoureux was that a presumption will violate section seven of the charter if it allows a person to be convicted, even though the trier of fact has a reasonable doubt. So I don't think three hours will withstand constitutional scrutiny. But... Whatever lawyers run that one, and it may not be us, need to make sure they have the right evidence to put before yep. the court. In St. Ange La Marue, they did not have enough evidence. And the sad they thing still is, won, I know, but, they didn't win enough. but I was sitting on a pile of evidence that I didn't give them because I didn't know what was going on with it. I wasn't involved in it. Now, Which we is know why if you're not people. already a member, you should join the Canadian Impaired Driving Lawyers Association. Well, Kylo's connected to everybody now uh, who's Not really, well, the people who are very serious. Mm -hmm. um, there's, um, there seems to be a void in uh, the prairies. So when. No, there's Alberta. Alberta is fairly well covered, but we there's don't have. Mark Brayford in Saskatchewan. Is he a member of the. No, but he exists. I know. <laughs> like there's lawyers who defend impaired driving cases. There's plenty of them, I'm sure. But, you know, for whatever reason, they don't seem to be heavily connected outside of those areas. Yeah, that is weird. Yeah, it's a little isolated zone. Yeah. Um, there's and then plenty Ontario, of good impaired driving lawyers in Alberta. Uh, there's yeah. probably are also plenty of good ones in, in Saskatchewan, but why they're not phoning us. You know, we get phone calls from lawyers all over the place asking us about devices and instruments and machines and arguments that um, they're thinking about running. And we almost never get a phone call from Saskatchewan or Manitoba. And it's interesting because the win rate for the prosecution, apparently, this was recently quoted in somewhere. CBC. Was it? Yeah. The win rate for the prosecution in Ontario is 60%. In BC, it's 33% or 35%. And Kyla probably does most of them, which is the reason the win rate, I think, is low. And um, in the rest of Canada, it's 65%. Uh, which just tells me that we're doing a good job and the people in Ontario, you know, some of the people there are doing a very good job. I don't know what, you know. Things are different in the other provinces. Well, things though. are run differently. We know that. I mean, I ran a trial but in the Ontario. the charter is different here. People joke about that. When I was in Alberta presenting two weeks ago to the um, Calgary Criminal Lawyers Association, they, I made some comment about, oh yeah, and there's this case that says that this is a charter violation. And then everybody laughed and said, yeah, that's a charter violation in BC. They've got a charter there. I know. Yeah. Well, we often joke that for the longest time, the joke was that the charter didn't exist when you got over the Portman Bridge. Yeah. I think now it's, it's, it doesn't exist when you get to Merritt. Merritt? We're think? in Merritt next week, by uh, the way. Are we? <laughs> The, uh, it's, it's harder. We're bringing the charter to merit. <laughs> it's harder in different places for whatever reason. Um, there's, there is some advantage when you go out of town because you're the guest star. Um, and they seem to really want to listen to your arguments for whatever reason. You might not get blown off so quickly. You might get blown yeah, off more quickly here in town. Yeah, I got, and I there's, got blown off pretty quickly recently in Cam Kelowna. Yeah, it happens. And, um, there's, uh, so there's guest star. Well, yeah, I know. I think I have more guest star power. You do. I think when you it's show up, QC. I think, yeah, no, I think it's your youthful good looks. You show up <laughs> and you, they think that, you know, they think that I might know somebody that I could, you know, uh, I would, I would be whining if I didn't get 
properly respected in court. It's got nothing to do with the QC thing. I've had guest star power for a long time. I go out of town and yeah, it's lovely. Actually, you go to All Alberta. Right. And um, I'm in a, like in Lethbridge or somewhere like that. And everybody's introducing themselves. They're like, hi, hey, there's a new guy. There's a, hi. Yeah. And so, you, you know, you know, there's a little bit of discussion in the back room and stuff. Okay. Anyway, so back to. Back to the point. So we've got the three hour expanding. And then we also have, so right now, if it's outside the two hours, the Crown has to call an expert. And the expert does a bunch of math and makes a bunch of assumptions or gets information that's elicited from your client because they open their big mouth and talk. Um, and then they say, this is what the blood alcohol level would have been at the time of driving. And that's how they do it in every over 08 case in the United States. They bring an expert. Yep. They explain it. Uh, they thankfully have a little bit smarter thing where they don't have presumptions mm -hmm. uh, and it's the onus is on the crown to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt and there is recognition of the fact that there is science out there that shows that uh, absorption elimination of alcohol are not just going to be consistent and linear. Yep but under the changes coming December 1st who needs an expert anyway because they've written in that you can just add 10 milligrams of alcohol in 100 milliliters of blood for every hour that's passed. So your samples are three hours and one minute after you were driving. They're just going to add 30 to the number. Is it an hour or half an hour? I can't remember now. It's, it's been an a hour. while since we looked at it. Is it's it? It's an hour. Yeah. Yeah. The so the theoretically, we worked it out. If you're, you know, like if it's eight hours later, you could be over 80. They just have to come to your house. You blow zero. And then you can... Well, it has <laughs> to be from 20, though. You have to provide a sample of at least 20. But the problem is there's all sorts of scientific literature, and we'll get to this with Nizer, that talks about the dangers of back extrapolation and nonlinear curves at low BACs. Not just that. Low BACs, no instrument is designed for them, and they are inaccurate. Uh, there's a general recognition in the scientific community that when you start to try and test it below 30 milligrams, None of those devices are accurate for what your blood alcohol concentration. But let's add 80 to 20 and you get 100 and all of a sudden you're impaired. Add 80 to 40 and you get 120 and you attract the new aggravated blood alcohol concentration. You got to think that there's somebody just with a bee in their bonnet and uh, not much else going on in their brain who designed this legislation. And I, you know, I'm not, I'm not. That's really mean. <laughs> um, well, but it's true. Maybe I just accurate. I don't know. I don't know who designed this other than, you know, Jody Wilson-Raybould, who's taking responsibility for it. I wouldn't want to be the one having to stand at the podium talking about how crappy this legislation was when it all gets struck down and poked full of holes. If, if and that aspect like of Swiss it, if that aspect of it stands, we are going to see wrongful prosecutions, wrongful convictions all the time. Oh, for all sure. All the time. They're going to have to open up a whole new branch of the Innocence Project just for impaired driving. Yeah. Which, by the way, I was thinking I should contact the Innocence Project about, because I bet there's a lot of wrongful conviction in that area. Well, you think, I of, the know problems, there is. think of the problems we found with the BAC Data Master C, or I mm -hmm. found just before you started, I guess, um, and, well, uh, and posted those videos. problems we found with ASDs. Yeah. Problems with the way that police are maintaining the devices that's not proper, like we found numerous times with ASDs in Port Moody, in Vancouver, um, again a, in Port Moody. If you, got a, if you got an over 08 conviction in Squamish on the basis of a of their um, BAC Data Master C, um, I, I am highly suspicious, and I I like the BAC Data Master C, but when we did when we when we got all of those freedom of information requests, we discovered that their five-way valve was jamming all the time. Uh, that was never disclosed to Crown Council. That was only you know came out as a result of the fact that they got rid of the evidence of the contrary provisions. But yeah, and the decision in Saint Angela Maru. But this retrograde extrapolation written in as a presumption, I don't see how it can stand. I think the current version barely stands. Um, the current presumptions and to stretch it out to three hours and then to allow them just to have a formula after the fact. I mean, it, it, it does not. Oh, but it speeds up the trials, It Paul. does not comply in any way with science. And the whole point of presumptions, that two-hour window presumption is, yes, you can rebut it if you want to go and testify about bolus drinking, which I'm sure they probably wrote some way of to get around that in this. They did. Did they? Yeah. They did. Sure. In fact, um, they 
they've written provisions in relation to abnormal drinking patterns, but they've also written, and this is another thing we should talk about, provisions eliminating people's ability to argue post-driving consumption. So now you can no longer argue that you consumed alcohol after the time of driving. Even if you did, it is... Um, it, it the burden is on you to only after you have stopped driving consume alcohol once you can reasonably expect you're not going to be asked to do a breath test remembering that they have three hours to do a breath test and can do it at random this is the federal government trying to legislate away the boogeyman there's these things that are like legendary uh that they hate one of them is the post-driving consumption. It was in some oh TV shows. Uh, you know, the, the lawyer tells the person to take the bottle of scotch out of their trunk and start drinking. Um, we know what happened to the police officer who tried that here in BC. Yeah, he got charged and convicted, convicted of obstruction. Convicted of obstruction of justice. Yeah, worse in the end for him. Um, that is fine. He's doing 10 years for perjury now, so. <laughs> is he? Okay. Yeah. Um, that was Monty, right? Monty Robinson, I think. Yes, that was. Um, the uh, Is he doing 10 years for perjury mm -hmm. or was it the other fellow? Was that? I think they all got 10 years for perjury. No, there was two guys who, who... Millington got the 10 years. He, yeah. was, uh, he was the black guy. Yeah, the black yeah, the guy black got guy, 10 yeah, years yeah, for that's perjury. That's what I was just thinking. The mm -hmm. black guy got a longer sentence. Um, the, um, well, I don't know. I wasn't sitting there. I don't know. He may have done something different. Maybe he was like arranging them, to concocting it. But the point is that... Um, um, that is the boogeyman case. It almost never happens. When it does, we had a remedy. Here's the other boogeyman case. That one years ago, there was a guy acquitted in Port Coquitlam of over 08 because he provided a sample that was over 80 milligrams, and he testified afterward and said, "Look, I was working in a body shop. I painted a car that night. It was all these organic chemicals that are in the paint." The expert witness came along and said, "Look, this infrared machine cannot detect it." It can't say whether or not it's organic chemicals from the paint that he's exhaling or it's alcohol. It could be. Mm -hmm. And the fellow was acquitted. And after that, it was a freakout among some police officers. They were just thought, everybody's going to be an auto body worker now painting late at night. <laughs> and so that is one of the reasons that we ended up with the Intox ECIR2. So because the electrochemical cell. result is supposed to not mm. be. I did uh, not know that. Yeah, I, did, I forgot to tell you that. You can ask your guest about that next week because he <laughs> remembers that. I we were will like, ask him. okay, so one person acquitted. There was actually two. There was somebody in Ontario. So in the last like twenty five years, two people were acquitted, and that led to us oh, getting. Oh no! That led to us getting a a. a Hey. Dangerous, dangerous breathalyzer. Better to give all of the drunk drivers or alleged drunk drivers one-year driving prohibition, $1,000 fines, and criminal records than to let one guilty man go free. That's exactly, sounded like your pirate self there. Oh, sorry. The, uh, no, that was good. The, uh, but you're right. That's the, there's a different standard. We have this. Yeah, we're uh, not throwing them in jail, yeah. so <laughs> we can co tolerate wrongful conviction. Besides, we're saving lives. And they were drunk. Yeah, if you don't want to get a DUI, just don't drink a drive. It's that simple. We are now being cynical. If there's a transcript being prepared of this, please note <laughs> transcript being prepared. We are being cynical. In brackets, please write dripping with cynicism. Yeah. Just we, if we're ever cross-examined on that, we're both going to be referring to the fact that it was purely meant to be holy, mocking the government. Holy fucking cynical. Yes. Um. No. The so that. So the extrapolation changes, the prevention of the bullish drinking and so, post accident So we should just state right now that there is great science out there that completely undermines retrograde extrapolation, particularly over longer periods of time. And in cases and it's in going particular to be easy to deal where with. accidents happen. And we're going to talk about that next week, so I don't want to spoil it all. It's going to be good. Maybe it's not going to be good. I don't know. They used to have a great defense for bolus drinking if you were, and I, I say this great defense, you know, this is the way that defense lawyers think, but um, cigarette smoking, because your stomach content's empty, yes. uh, um, emptying is slowed down if you're smoking. Not that much, though. Not enough to affect it in th over three hours. No, but you may not be, if you smoke right after driving or you're smoking while driving, uh, you can have that alcohol sitting in your stomach and might not be over 80 milligrams at the time you're driving. Now, the it's Court of the Appeal in you're British... You're just cutting me off. No, I, I wanted to talk about defenses to bolus drinking because there is this panic that people raise these bolus drinking defenses. That's and the, the boogeyman. It's the boogeyman. It is, but the, the Court of Appeal sort of really limited that 
recently with a, a judgment that makes perfect sense, which is, yes, the burden is on the Crown to prove the assumptions underlying the expert's opinion, including that there's been no bolus drinking. But in the absence of some evidence, whether it's statements by an accused or presence of liquor containers in the vehicle or proximity to bars or whatever the case may be, in the absence of some evidence to support that that was a possibility, it's reasonable to infer that the drinking is normal social drinking. I, I don't like the inference. I don't like the inference. I've had plenty of clients who were going through some sort of life crisis. Sure, but usually they much. make some statement to the officer like, I just drank a Mickey and got in my car. I've had a few of those, yeah. And they yeah. I don't think they were over 80 at the time of driving. No, I mean, but you, on a reasonable doubt standard, I certainly wouldn't have said that they would. But the Court of Appeal, and, and you've seen, I've seen the judgment applied in a number of circumstances where they, they say, you know, if you have that evidence, if there's something to suggest to the officer that there was non-normal social drinking, then that has to be factored into the expert's opinion. Um, but, I mean, if you've got... But I don't see, how is that factored into the expert's opinion? That's an issue of fact that's decided by the trier of fact. It and just then the expert just deals with the hypothetical. Anyway, I, I think the courts have watered it down enough that it wasn't ever a danger, is my point. I don't think it was ever a danger. I don't think I ever ran a bolus drinking defense. I had, you know, cases where there was likely bolus drinking, but every other, all of those cases, I had something else that was better. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, C46 and a lot of these changes are really the, it seems like the changes to the last ditch defense arguments other than the random breath testing change like yeah. if you're getting to the point where you're cross-examining the expert and they're extrapolating readings you've already lost all your charter applications you've already lost all your scientific arguments you're already like at that point you know really gunning for a let's not get a conviction dear god please no rather than you know i think we can win this thing yeah, no, that's 100% correct. So the last thing I want to talk about, we've got a few minutes left. Do we? We do. Because we could do a whole show about this if you're about to talk about what I'm thinking. Go ahead. Let's hear it. Let's hear it, Kyla. At or above 80. Yeah, we Is could do a whole, whole show? show about this. Okay. Well, because think about it. Think about their, you know, three-hour window. Mm-hmm. We're not talking now over 80 milligrams. Okay, so the change is... Go ahead and explain it. The change is, show, instead Kyla. of over 80 milligrams of alcohol in 100 milliliters of blood at or above 80 milligrams of alcohol in 100 milliliters of blood. It is effectively lowering the legal limit by one milligram of alcohol. 10 milligrams. But 10 really because of yeah. truncation. 10, yeah. Well, forget the truncation point for a minute and let's talk about some other things. So previously you had to be at least 90 and they would run trials in Alberta and Ontario at 90. Which is and correct. almost never win. And frankly, in those 90 cases, there was a reasonable doubt every time in my mind that the person was over 80 um, for lots of reasons, but uh, tech technology reasons, testing reasons. Um, margin of error. Margin of error. Uh, and um, I, I, nobody should ever be convicted at 90. If they want to lower the limit, they should make it something else. Uh, you know, above 60 milligrams, but they have a problem with that. And part of it is something I spoke about earlier, and that is limits of the technology. When you get to lower readings, these instruments are not designed for that. They are, they, they are not as sensitive and they are not as accurate. But let's talk for a second now about where you are tested two hours later and you test at 80 milligrams or two hours and 45 minutes later, mm -hmm. and you test at 80 milligrams, you might have had 20 milligrams in your body at the time of driving. You might have had 30 milligrams in your body at the time of driving, 40, 50, 60, 70. You could be anywhere that's under 80 and have that alcohol being absorbed into your body afterward and be on a rising curve. You might plateau at 80, you might plateau at 90 and be down to 80 at the time that you're tested. But the point is, there's a significant likelihood. We're not just talking possibility or slim possibility. There's a likelihood that your blood alcohol concentration is going to be something very different than 
80 milligrams. And remember, with their retrograde extrapolation formula, four hours later, you tested it at whatever, 60 yep. milligrams or 50 milligrams, and they're back extrapolating it to at 80. Get you to 80. Let's talk for a minute about partition ratio. Mm-hmm. All of the instruments in Canada, breath testing instruments, both the approved screening devices and the approved instruments used at detachments, operate under an assumption that the um, a, a, a mathematical formula, and that is an assumption that uh, 2,100 cubic centimeters, 2.1 liters of your exhaled air, you're not going to blow that much out, but would have the same amount of alcohol as one cubic centimeter of your blood. The underlying scientific uh, principle used for this is something called Henry's Law that says that at a given temperature, the saturated vapor above a solution contains a concentration of solute proportional to the concentration of solute in the solution. So they assume 2.1 liters of air is the same as one liter of blood. And that was, was calculated on the basis of pulling blood from people and taking their breath at the same time and working out a rough formula. And they, the police uh, experts will always say, well, that benefits the majority of the population because most people are probably 2,200 to 1. But the problem is that might be 51% of the population. Or even 75%. Or 75% might be at a higher, higher than 2,100 to 1. That means a significant portion of the population are going to be lower than 2,100 to 1. And that formula, nobody is 2,100 to 1. There's no such thing as a person who is 2,100 to 1. Well, there Zero. might be one person. No. no. Zero. And you ask any scientist and ask them to think about it, and they will come to the same conclusion. And the reason being that your partition ratio changes over time because right. of alcohol collected in your mucus. So if you drank the night before and you got yourself just plastered, your blood alcohol concentration when you breathe into a, a breathalyzer is going to be inaccurately high later. So those people who blow 200 at 7 o'clock in the morning, they might be still at 160 or something like that, but their their breath might give an indication of 200. It's also been studied, um, and there was a an article referred to that the, any expert who's listening to this will know what I'm talking about, the paradigm shift. It was a uh, Washington State study. It wasn't just a study. He laid out a bunch of the problems with breath alcohol testing and said, this needs to be studied. This needs to be studied. Here's a problem with this. And this was one that nobody's really picked up on yeah, the way I, they I should. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the scientific study that's gone into breath testing has been all based on conclusions that were reached in the 50s using testing of white men. 50s and 60s, yeah. Yeah, and I don't think that we've done a real, like, population study where we separate people based on, you know, gender, ethnic background, um, even, like, body fat makeup, all these, you know, different things that, these different characteristics. I to think see ethnicity if that has, plays into it, yeah. Eth- I would imagine, because you can see, you see, like, look at the, the so-called Asian flush um, and acetylaldehyde deficiencies that are common in people of East Asian descent. Um, if you see those types of intolerances to alcohol, I would expect that the breath-blood ratio might be different among East Asian descent population than it is against, you know, with, with Caucasian people or indigenous people who historically didn't have alcohol and it was introduced. The problem is, I mean, the way that they, condi- they conducted the original studies was they pulled over people at night. And who was driving at night in the 50s and 60s? It was white the, into the 60s. White men. They were driving home from work. And then they asked them, they, you know, you volunteer to provide this. You will not be prosecuted. We're doing some studies. And those men blew into chemical breath testing machines. So, you know, not exactly the best way of doing it in the first place. And they compared that with the blood they drew. And not necessarily the best way to test the blood back then either. You know, we've got much better ways of testing blood now, Mm -hmm. uh, alcohol concentration in blood. And that was the basis of it. And then the rest of the tests that have been done since have been done on healthy individuals. Yeah. Healthy lungs. They don't do scientific tests 
such as this on unhealthy individuals. Why are we not taking smokers and people with lung cancer? Well, they probably were all smokers, but back then. But the (laughs) well, um, maybe that changes. Of course, it could because of of damage to your lungs. Absolutely. All of those smokers might have had a partition ratio that was 2200 or 2300 and maybe Different somebody... Different partition ratios because of higher concentrations of mucus healthy, because of... Healthy non-smokers might have 1700 to 1. Now, uh, studies done since have been done where? In Northern Europe, Germany and Sweden again. White uh, people. And smokers. Yeah. So, I don't know. And I mostly mean, men. I would, I would throw some money at and, that. Well, the problem is throw some money at it. How do you do it? you do what 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 how many people do you really need to test like i, don't I think know, they like a prob- hundred no i think probably Thousands. like five thousand yeah. people in a multicultural you to, like, society go around the world test people in beijing and then test people in uh mumbai and but then, then test you have people to test in... them, but then you also have to test them like every hour oh see it's, you know like it's it, a it huge is... undertaking but it's a worthwhile endeavor if our entire system of prosecuting impaired drivers has been based on flawed science and the flawed science has led to thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of wrongful convictions. Is well, it not worth spending the money? Recognizing the flaws in the science, we had or the presumptions. Or improving the science that we recognizing have. Recognizing the flaws in the science. We had the presumptions. We had the over 80 milligrams. Now it's like saying... We don't know about the way we're, we're going to ignore the flaws in the science now. Yeah. So this is our concern. We've and been talking about it in the office from time to time. It's all coming in December. Not nearly enough has been said about it. I mean, I, I urge any reporters who listen and who are still hanging on 51 minutes into this long podcast today, please report about this stuff. People need to know. The scientific community needs to know. The police need to know. There's there's making of a murderer and all of these shows where people get so upset about wrongful convictions. And here we are going to, I mean, we've seen wrongful convictions in this country since they got rid of evidence to the contrary in 2008. And we're going to see an explosion of wrongful convictions from this. Yes. So, again... Unless the judges figure it out and blow it out right away. Yeah. And again, we end on a very sad note. But... A happy note, next week we get to talk some cool science with Nizer Shijani and maybe some other stuff too. There's a study that Paul and I might talk about if I have time after my interview with Nizer about what BC drivers think of BC drivers. I, I, I don't know about this study. We'll talk about it next week. I'll send it to you so you can review it in time. Okay. Okay. Thanks for tuning in. If you want to get in touch with us, 604-685-8889 or find us online, VancouverCriminalLaw.com. And every Friday we have a new episode of the Driving Law Podcast. So tune in next week. We're looking forward to having you listen.